Good morning, friends. It's really wonderful to have you with us at church today. Uh, it'd be an enormous help to me if you had opened with you uh, the passage that was read for us just a moment ago from Corinthians chapter 14. So a passage that we we'll want to be looking at as we work through together. Uh, on your service sheet, you might notice that as well as um, a foolish uh, day service outline with a few extra verses and ones I'm going to be referring to, there's also a QR code at the bottom of the page uh, that you can scan right now if you like, have the app open, ready to jot down any questions uh, that you might have about things that I say, or things I don't say, uh, things that are in the passage, uh, and we'll have a Q&A session after um, uh, song and prayer in a little while later this morning as well. So please do take use of that if you uh, like. Um, I have been asked um, a couple of times last week whether I might explain a little bit of the difference between prophecy and teaching, and I promise I cover that in today's passage. Um, as kind of just to distort Jesus' own words a little bit, um, today's passage has enough trouble of its own um, without bringing other questions in, but I am more than happy uh, to answer that in question and answer time. But I think I'll probably also record a video uh, this coming week, just to give a little bit more distinction between what we're speaking about with prophecy and teaching, so I know it's something that people might want to have a little think through. Uh, and reflect on further than seems to do on the run. So, my apologies for that. I wonder if you've heard this saying, perhaps you've only heard half of it. Speech is silver, silence is golden. Uh, before I looked up to find out where this phrase had come from, apparently it probably has an Arabic uh, background. It was translated for the first time into English in the 1830s. I've only heard the second half of that uh, saying, silence is golden. But it's interesting, isn't it, the phrase of here when it comes to speech. Speech is silver, silence is golden. And there are many times, aren't there, when silence is a greater gift than speech. Uh, in the midst of enormous grief, or perhaps when bearing an enormous burden of regret for something, to have someone who can sit with us in silence rather than lecture us about how we should have done this or how we could fix things, that could be an enormous gift. Well, the gift of a leader who is willing to create silence and space in which other voices have the opportunity to be heard and acknowledged. Silence is indeed often gold. And yet we also speak of oppressive silence, don't we? Silence, that feels oppressive. It's like a big, heavy weight. Perhaps when some voices are consistently muted in favour of others. Or when there's the enforcement of a gag order or a non-disclosure agreement that prevents someone from even speaking the truth, what is right or good. Or even just the routine muffling of another's voice, such as an already Silence is golden. Silence is oppressive. How might we risk one kind of silence becoming another? And that's a question that's given a bit of an unsettling sense of urgency you know, in light of today's passage. Not least of all, because some of the very characteristics of our own church meetings here on Sunday morning and midweek in our growth groups seem on the surface of things to perhaps contravene some of Paul's specific commands given. Should it? 
settlers? For Paul grounds his instructions in today's passage in both the law and in the explicit command of the law to himself. Are we really obedient just to roll our eyes at Paul's words? Today's passage once again addresses a topic that we've touched on several times the last few weeks: tongues and prophecy. Two forms of public speech that Paul insists all believers are free to participate in for the good of the church. Yet, tongues and prophecy is also speech which love might sometimes require us to silence for the love of the others. I have a look here at our opening verses where Paul picks up from last week, middle of chapter 14, verse 26. Shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a gift or a word of instruction or a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or if most preach should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should be quiet. Speak to himself and to God. A silence is a critical element, Paul insists in these verses, when it comes to praying and praising God in tongues, in spirit, toward languages, whatever those languages might be. Firstly, if a tongue is included in church gatherings at all, it's certainly not something that Paul himself insists on, but if they are included, if praying to God and praising God in tongues are to be a benefit, the others will go to the church, then most of the church will need to lovingly exercise silent restraint. Even if many of them, even if all of them are personally gifted, the Indeed, even the two or three people who might speak in tongues, they themselves will need to embrace silence at points. For not only are they to speak one at a time, all together at the same time of competition. The tongue speaker must also embrace silence so that someone might be able to interpret for others to hear, to understand, and say a hearty Amen in agreement with the prayer and the praise that they might offer. And if there is no interpreter, then the tongue speaker is called to be completely silent in the church of God. Now, for some people, I'm sure. speaker's rightful participation in church life. Then the kind of oppressive silence that mutes their personal engagement with God himself. Not at all, says the Bible. For even when the tongue speaker chooses to silence their speech out of love for others, Paul affirms that in their own spirit they remain actively engaged with respect to God. It's just that they don't insist on everyone else being forced into silence so that they might speak. If you notice in verse 28, they nonetheless are still perfectly and actively engaged in their spirit with God himself. A similar pattern of love-informed silence is to shape a church of prophecy, of sharing mutual words or encouragement. 
encouragement, strengthening, and comfort. Uh, have a look with me in verse 29, where Paul continues on. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. But you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disobey, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the As with the practice of tongues, so also with the practice of prophecy. But most of the church will need to exercise loving restraint in silence, even though they themselves might also be genuinely gifted to be able to speak words of encouragement, strengthening, and comfort at the same time. Even the person who prophesied, Paul says, they themselves will need to embrace silence at several points. Firstly, so that one or two others might also contribute their words of strengthening, encouragement, and comfort, but also, secondly, so that others might judge or weigh the usefulness of the prophecy, the truthfulness and love of usefulness of the prophecy that they're offering to the Catholic Church. Now, I don't think we should imagine here that Paul is suggesting that the one who is prophesying needs to stop mid-sentence as soon as someone else shoots their hand up to announce that they have had something dawn on them as they've been listening to the Scriptures. Uh, as if the freshest word of encouragement automatically trumps Whatever the first speaker is saying, you know, if the Holy Spirit is chaotically jumping from one person to the next, that would just be to introduce a whole different brand of chaos and disorder into church life, wouldn't it? And if only two or three people are prophesied, I guess in a particularly eager congregation, you'd be pretty much done in case of 30 seconds, you know, people trumping each other, and just in the, in the space of a minute or so. Paul's point here, I think, is simply that the one speaker must not silence everyone else by filibustering the church gathering for their own benefit. Uh, Storm Thurmond, this is a photo of um, a US politician uh, who holds a record for speaking for the longest 24 hours and 18 minutes. He delivered a speech for. Uh, he delivered this filibuster, this non stop speech as an attempt to prevent the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1957, a bill that would have given African-Americans a voice in voting in American elections. And in order to try and scuttle that piece of legislation, this fellow spoke for 24 hours and 18 minutes. His refusal to be silent evidenced that there was no love for others in his own speech. Only an intent to forward his own agenda. In this case, at the cost of others. But the one who does prophesy, Paul says, the one addressed to the church with words of strengthening, encouragement, and comfort, is also going to need to be able to embrace silence so that others might judge or lack the usefulness of the prophecy that they're offering. Uh, this way of judging of prophecy is aimed at ensuring that its message is both in line with the teaching of the apostles and that it's directed towards loving of the community. 
the pursuit of truth and love will at times silence the contributions of those who are prophesying. And yet, from the verses that follow, the verses that remain for us to look at this morning, we'll likely find ourselves grappling with two probably equally unsettling questions. How exactly might Paul's injunctions about the silence of women in church have any relevance for the loving use of prophecy? And how exactly does Paul's directions about women's silence in church square with the prophetic voice of women embraced in our own church gatherings, whether it's here in the service or when we have those meals at the end of the sermon series and we have men and women from our congregations sharing words of prophecy for the encouragement and strengthening and comfort of the whole church community. How do, how do our practices square with Paul's words in this passage? Uh, let's have a look together at some of these verses. We'll begin in verse 74. Paul writes, Women should remain silent they are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the Lord says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you only the people that it's reached? If anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, then let them acknowledge what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Now, at first glance, Paul seems to be saying, seems to be laying an even more absolute limit upon the speech of women than he even places upon the discordant speaking of those who are speaking in uninterpreted tongues. Perhaps all at once in a chaotic mess. But why understand we read a passage like this one before us and immediately overwhelmed by the potential that words such as these have to be misused. And, we may even have come to church today already resolved just to give the passage knowing I roll and to move on. Just to let the words go past and give, give all the benefit of our, our grace and pretend that you never said it. <laughs> Yet to do so, says be to treat with contempt both the testimony of the law, whatever Paul is speaking about there, and the very command of the Lord Jesus himself. <coughs> and I don't need to do that. Firstly, we're certainly not at liberty to read today's passage as enforcing an absolute ban on the ministry, the speaking ministry of women in gathered church gatherings, but why? I think we were just recall a few weeks back in chapter 11, you might recall that Paul had already unambiguously affirmed that we can't speak to both pray and to prophesy in church gatherings for the good of God's people. Whatever Paul might be saying in today's passage is unanimously and unambiguously in favour of women's voices being heard in church. Where we fail not only to commit but to also actively encourage the voices of women, will be found guilty of despising those who are precious members of Christ's own and who have been given to us for the building 
Just a couple of weeks ago, we had our parish council and wardens elected. The parish council, particularly the local wardens, consult with me on a lot of the ministry decisions that we make here at Sunday Church about how we organise our shared life together, the way in which we operate in ministry. And if there are things that they are concerned about and want greater priority on, they'll often bring those up in parish council meetings. And in fact, if there's ever something that you look at the way in which we organise church life, You'd like to understand a little bit more about why it's done that way. I mean, you could chat with me after the service. I'd love to speak with you. But even if I promise to get back to you, I might forget midweek or it might drop off my list. You are more than welcome to address it in one of the parish council meetings. Saying, hey, do you think you could bring this up at parish council and see if as a whole you could discuss about how you think about this particular aspect of church life or that particular aspect of church life? Uh, and we as a parish council could reflect on it and and yet, if we were to keep on going with that, chapter 11, you might also Paul did identify one particular, one potential abuse of prophecy that he feared the Corinthians might be particularly vulnerable to. And you might, if you weren't here then, you might like to go on our, uh, either our podcast page or YouTube and follow up on what we looked at in chapter 11. We're not going to go into it in detail today. But then Paul did identify a situation in which a wife might be tempted to use her newly acquired and God-given freedom to prophesy in a manner that proclaimed her unwillingness to submit to, to embrace her married unity with her husband. Do you remember that was reflected in the one who might enact that socially provocative removal of the head husband that signified a unity of oneness? Of husband and wife. Indeed, back further a few weeks earlier than that, in chapter 7, if you looked at chapter 7 at the end last year, we'd already come across Christian wives who mistakenly believed that they should dissolve their marriages, divorcing unbelieving husbands in an attempt to bolster their own and their children's spiritual status and stand, as if being bound in one flesh with an unbeliever somehow compromised them. So that they would need to divorce In fact, in a personal letter that Paul writes to the church leader Timothy, uh, we'll come across Timothy towards the end of 1 Corinthians. He was one of those leaders who went back and looked after the church in Corinth. Paul warned Timothy to be on the lookout for false teachers who will teach that Christian freedom prohibits submitting to the bond of marriage at all. They forbade these false teachers would forbid an outlaw marriage for Christian believers, as if it compromised their spiritual status and standing in respect to God. And I think that there are several factors in today's passage that indicate Paul is expressing here a similar concern for maintaining the integrity of marriage, that it might not be compromised or undone or undermined. As I addressed back in chapter 11, when we explored submission, and in our Ephesians series a couple of years ago, women in general are never called to submit to men in general. When referring to men and women, Paul only speaks of submission in the context of marriage. That's one thing to get clear about what's being spoken of here with respect to submission. Wives are called, called to submit to unity, to being one flesh with their husbands. Paul in particular never implies that a husband 
has authority over his wife that she is to submit to. Nor does he speak of wives submitting to their husbands' leadership, which is a very modern term for his authority. Well, neither the Old Testament law nor Jesus ever commanded the silence of men. Both the law and Jesus did explicitly command that God's intention for marriage was that it is a one flesh union that should never be willingly and deliberately dissolved. I have a look at these uh, words from Mark chapter 10 as an example. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't fit them all on the slide. You'll see why I've got the dot 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 in the middle. But I'll read the whole section. So I'm going to read verses 2, uh, which is up there on the screen, and then skip down to verses 5, down to 10, Mark 10. But you can look up the whole passage later on. You'll see in a minute why I've tried to keep it all on the slide. We read in Mark 10 Some Pharisees came and tested Jesus by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answers, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote in this law, Jesus replied, that at the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, Jesus commands, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house, same word for home, when they were in the home again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, we can read a little bit more of a detail about what they asked. They had some problems with what Jesus was teaching on this occasion. I want you to know two things. Firstly, the command that Jesus speaks here, that God will God enjoy together, let no one separate, is the very same command that Paul himself explicitly refers to in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, warning against dissolving one flesh unity of marriage. There's only two times in the whole letter that Paul speaks about the Lord's command. One of them in chapter 7, where it's explicitly part of this command not to dissolve marriage. Jesus' own command is based on the law, that is, Genesis the of Adam and then Eve's union, we find in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The law is a phrase that is often used to describe that part of the Old Testament scriptures which are the prophets. Recall that Jesus will often speak about the law and the prophets. It's not just the law isn't just rules, it's the Old Testament canon, uh, so to speak. Now, in contrast to the public asking of the Pharisees, I think we still, we still want the slide up there. Uh, in contrast to the public asking of the Pharisees, the disciples wait until they're back home before they press Jesus, before they question Jesus on this teaching that he is simply teaching. And when Paul in today's passage speaks about a wife inquiring of her husband at home, he's using the very same word, the exact same word and phrase that describes the speech of those who might challenge, demand answers of, and even interrogate Jesus. Jesus' enemies typically do this publicly so that they might entrap disgrace and humiliate him. The disciples almost always express their misgivings in private questioning afterwards in their home now. While prophecies, the prophecies.
prophecies that were offered in the church community were to be weighed or judged, the prophecies themselves, the prophets were not to be in their publicly interrogated or placed under suspicion. There's a difference there between weighing the prophecies that are being offered in the church community and weighing or judging the prophets themselves. The prophets themselves were never to be weighed or judged as if they should have to defend themselves in the way in which, for instance, Jesus enemies judge him. Yet it seems as if the practice of publicly weighing prophecies in the Corinthian church presented a rare and unique opportunity for wise to speak publicly and address this congregation is not something that's typically done in the ancient by especially by wives. And this opportunity to weigh public prophecies, not the prophets, the prophecies, presented a rare and unique opportunity for wives to instead stand over and publicly interrogate their husbands, and to do so in a way that might disgrace them or shame them. But that is not what prophecy is for, Paul is saying in this passage. It's not an opportunity for us to weigh and judge the prophets as if we wanted to exalt ourselves above them. Now it's important to be crystal clear at this point, especially as we look down at verse 35. Paul is not suggesting in verse 35 that the husband is to exercise authority, the authority of a pastor, over his wife in the home. That's not what, what Paul is saying in verse 35. It's not that the husband has authority over his wife's spiritual formation in the home. Paul isn't saying that either in verse 35. Paul's concern is that the public weighing of public prophecy not become an occasion for the public inquisition and judgment of the prophets themselves, and certainly not for a challenging integrity of marriage. Paul here is not silencing prophecy, the prophecy of anyone. He's silencing that kind of speech that might challenge the place of prophecy at all in the church. He's protecting the integrity of this public speech of prophecy from individual personal issues. And in all of this really brings me to the most important section which perhaps understandably, uh, I'm sure no one would have been very happy if I skipped over uh, and not addressed any of the more difficult aspects of the passage, but perhaps understandably, though very regrettably, this last little section is often perceived as comparatively little connected to no attention. Uh, read the final couple of verses with me, verses 39 to 40. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, Eva to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking tongues, that everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Be eager to prophesy. Be eager to speak God's words of strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. These are words that are grounded in the apostles' teaching about Jesus' death and his resurrection. Words that speak to the weaknesses and the discouragements and the worries of this present moment. Paul says, be eager to speak to one another for each other's strengthening, encouragement, and comfort in the difficult moments. 
It's not just the recognised teachers alone who are called to pursue this ministry of Christ, but the whole body of Christ. Despite all of the potential abuses of prophetic speech that Paul identifies in this passage, his unambiguous aim is to encourage and nurture the use of prophecy amongst God's people, not to smother it under a blanket of over-interest safeguards. And I certainly wouldn't want you to go away with silence being the last thing on your mind. For silence is only being spoken of in this passage in order to nurture and promote the healthy use of prophecy for each other's strengthening and encouragement and comfort. That is finally what Paul exhorts us. And close in prayer. Uh, and if there are questions that you have, I'd really love for them to be sent through. Uh, and as we've mentioned before, uh, if you don't get to process the questions that you might have in time, uh, if you do enter them in later on over the course of the morning, uh, we might be able to touch on uh, in the scenes service, uh, and you can have a little sneak and tune in uh, either in person or online. Dearest Father, we do thank you that you yourself are a speaking God. And that you have equipped many people in different ways to speak also in the church, so that we might be strengthened, encouraged, and comforted by what you have done for us in and through the Lord Jesus himself. Father, we ask that you would embolden us to speak in such a way that we might all be encouraged to draw close. Yet, Father, even in the boldness of our speaking, help us to grasp and to identify when it is that we might be able to use silence as a way of loving others, whether it be enabling them to speak or enabling them to reflect on and question how we might love one another with the words that have been spoken. We ask all this in Jesus' name.